Buongiorno and welcome to the Global Podcast, where we keep you up to date on the latest trends and insights on diplomacy in international development. I'm your host, Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Tecum Global Consultancy, based here in London, which produces this series. In this podcast, I sit down with thought leaders, diplomats, and experts on the field, as well as provide analysis from our own team at Pax to talk more about the need for diplomacy in international development in order to foster political will around greater social impact and good. So grab your headphones and let's get on with the show. Welcome back to another monthly episode of the Global Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing Sudan, the recent coup, and why it actually matters to U.S. foreign policy, given that there may not be much or not enough going on at present to support its transition. Since early 2019, Sudan has staged a coup which saw the peaceful overthrow of the nearly 30-year dictatorship of the former Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir. The coup that was led predominantly by the Sudanese professional societies led to the installment of a temporary government with a unique temporary division of power between Sudanese civil representatives and the army. However, as of late 2021, the division of power was cut short with the army division imprisoning the newly elected Sudanese Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok, causing further protests in the country. Now, the Prime Minister was ultimately released, yet despite that, Prime Minister Hamdok actually stepped down from his post in January, sparking more uncertainty as protests continue to run strife and become slightly more violent. During this time, U.S. Special Envoy to the Horn of Africa, Jeffrey Feldman, has been mediating between both factions, but talks continue to go nowhere or remain quite stagnant. It seems the Biden administration isn't doing much at all to put Sudan as a priority in comparison to the other East African nations, such as Ethiopia. With U.S. President Biden declaring that America is back, quote-unquote, following his election last year, How true can that actually be? And is the U.S. making a mistake in not taking more of a collaborative and active role in ensuring the peaceful transition of power in Sudan, which is due within a year or so? Joining us to discuss this are Dr. Sharath Sirinivasan and Sharif Allah. Dr. Sharath is the David and Elaine Potter Lecturer in Governance and Human Rights in the Department of Politics and International Studies and a Fellow of King's College, Cambridge. Dr. Sharath has been the inaugural director and currently co-director of the University of Cambridge's Center of Governance and Human Rights, CGHR, which is also a multidisciplinary and outlook-lurking center with the explicit goal of influencing policy and practice through innovative and critically constructive research. He has also recently written a book on Sudan, When Peace Kills Politics, International Intervention, and Ending Wars in the Sudans, which is also now available and highly a recommendable read. Sharif Allah has been working with intergovernmental and non-governmental organizations on supporting transitional processes in the field of democracy promotion, electoral assistance, and observation. This also includes peace building, especially since 2008, with a particular focus on North Africa and the Middle East. 
He has been based in Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, and currently Sudan, and he is also an external lecturer on the theory and practice of democracy promotion at Darmstadt Technical University in Germany. So without further ado, welcome gentlemen to the Global Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. First of all, we began with this episode with a, a quite of a small summary on what is going on in Sudan, but naturally that's not, it can never be enough to really help understand, particularly at least give the audience an understanding of, of what is currently going on. So uh, Dr. Sharaf, in, in the spirit of your recently published book, which again, I, I do implore the audience to really take a, to give it a read, When Peace Kills Politics, what is currently going on in Sudan so the audience can really understand more, particularly that has been happening since late last year, which seemed to be the most recent development. Sure, thank you. Well, as you said, um, these uh, events really take us back to early 2019. Uh, you characterized the events at the beginning of 2019 as a coup, but um, one could argue that it wasn't a coup, right? It was a popular revolution. It was a popular uprising, civilians in very large numbers on the streets. Uh, it began in late 2018, but there was history of that kind of protest before that. Uh, and it coalesced around a set of forces, uh, civilian forces, uh, political parties, uh, professional associations, and what were called neighborhood resistance committees that rose up and came together and asked and called for um, the end of President al-Bashir's rule of the country and along with him, his party. And in that sense, it was a popular revolution, but it wasn't only a popular revolution because what did occur at the same time was what you might call a palace coup, which is to say the security and military uh, elites around President al-Bashir uh, also sought to move against him and depose him. So what we had at the beginning was this mass protest, the fall of al-Bashir, but really um, of his replacement initially by a military council that sought to arrest, uh, arrest control and contain the situation. That continued to be resisted on the streets because the people said, no, we want the military to go. We want the erstwhile regime of al-Bashir to go. So the protests continued. And after some bloody confrontations between the military and security establishment and the protesters, the civilians, finally an accommodation was re reached. And it was a, a joint civilian military transition um, that was agreed, a sovereign council that would comprise both military and civilian elements. So from the, about August 2019, um, for the period afterwards, that was supposed to be the governing uh, government under a constitutional gov uh, document that would cover the transition. And what happened after that was that um, within that time, some of the conflicts between rebel movements and the Sudanese state were also resolved. There was a new peace agreement called the Juba Peace Agreement. It brought some of these rebel movements from Darfur, other parts of the country, um, the Nuba Mountains and Blue Nile, um, into the mix of this transitional government. And that had some destabilizing effects. And then you had a milestone that should have been reached where the, the army leadership um, pulled back from the transition and gave way to the, pres the, the leadership of the country being in the hands, really, of the civilian forces um, as a sort of the next milestone to, um, before a democratic transition. And as that milestone um, uh, came about, uh, 
the army became increasingly nervous. Security elements saw that there was some um, risks to their control and power, and they they decided to move against the very transitional government that they were part of. So they are the ones who really staged a coup. That coup occurred in October of last year. It was a coup by military security elements within this transitional government and some of the rebel leaders that had signed this peace agreement, and they all moved against the civilian forces, in effect. Um, the prime minister was arrested. Many others were arrested and put in jail. And that led to a resurgence on the street of protest. Um, so those are the dynamics leading to the, the coup of last year, the protests that then have continued since October. Um, the prime minister, as you said, was in jail, but then he was released. He sought to um, uh, uh, calm down the tensions on the street and the, the violence against the protesters by going back into government and trying to reach an accommodation to rescue the transition. But ultimately, he felt that the transition um, was not moving in the right direction. And the protesters on the street also said, we've had enough with the transition. The transition, in effect, is dead. It's the coup plotters that ripped up the constitutional document. Um, so we want a full transition to civilian democratic government right now. And that's interesting. And that's taking then my next question actually to Sharif, particularly around the transition, you know, the interesting aspect about this dynamic is, of course, that the the popular movement that you've indicated, Dr. Sharaf, uh, the, for, for this uprising had actually not only allowed it for a peaceful removal of power of Omar Bashir, but one must appreciate the fact that he had been in power for almost 30 years. So to, just question going to Sharif. Why is this transition and why is this moment in Sudanese history particularly important and, and perhaps even different than others uh, within the region, if you can clarify on that? First of all, um, this, this transition um, has, has significance in, in the region and uh, especially in the region due to a number of unsuccessful uh, transitions that uh, happened at the beginning uh, you know tunisia of course is is the is the case everyone wanted to work to prove that democracy and um, civilian led through elect uh, democratically elected government is possible in in the region and this was uh, the case and uh, and of course what happened in tunisia uh, not to drift away from the topic but since august last year has also uh, put risks about uh, democratic slide uh, that is that we're seeing so now uh, there is a re-emergence of this hope for uh, for Sudan and for uh, the region right it, uh, ge geographically it is not surrounded by uh, many democracies uh, so this this is one of the significance another one is um, that it's uh, as as you said after 30 years of authoritarian uh, regime people through uh, resisting uh, really managed uh, even if it was was with the support of uh, what was uh, earlier called uh, a palace coup right because i mean it it has to be either through something like a palace coup or someone please the country like ben uh, ben ali so there is uh, significance but there are underlying factors and and, and there are many challenges uh, another also significant is that there are uh, armed movements right plenty of, uh, of armed movements. So reaching a democratic transition and an inclusive uh, process uh, that leads to sustainable peace, Sudan has suffered from uh, terrible uh, civil civil wars affecting the entire population. Uh, so reaching a, a peaceful democratic transition will be significant to also uh, put an end to the the violence and, and, and killing. Uh, however, there are uh, very 
different factors that are affecting uh, this uh, transition since the beginning and uh, and especially now since since October 25th um, with the military uh, movements and takeover or coup uh, of, of 2021. Um, so one of the factors is the nature of the military civilian uh, partnerships. Um, it was, um, it, it, it is, it is not all only a military civilian partnership, but even within the military, there are the dynamics between, uh, the regular, uh, armed forces and the rapid support forces, uh, that, uh, are represented in the sovereign council, uh, by, for example, the, the, the head of the RSF, the rapid support forces, who is the deputy head of, uh, of the sovereign, uh, council. So there are also different dynamics between, um, the, the, the military, uh, it's, it's not one just military, it's, it's the armed forces and the RSF. This is one thing. And the other thing was a civilian, um, the civilian part was not homogenous, was not in harmony. And this is uh, why we saw, for example, a splinter of the FFC, the Forces for Freedom of Change, um, that, uh, that, that happened. Um, so this is uh, also uh, one of, of the reasons uh, why people now are on the street, because uh, a lot of the young people um, um, were really disappointed by uh, by 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 the civilians. Uh, so I, I I wouldn't say that they're now. Uh, ruled out, but uh, definitely the FFC um, has lost a bit of its significance on the street. I know that in many countries we like to say youth and the romanticization of the word uh, youth as if it's one homogen homogenous entity, and of course it isn't, but they're not, right? But but in, in Sudan it is truly the case that youth are a massive driving force. Well, you, you know, the, the resistance committees uh, that are predominantly uh, youth, um, and so so there's a lot of dynamics and energy uh, on the street, but less uh, organization on a political level. They are they are capable of organizing protests, but the organization in terms of uh, unified voice uh, that comes with uh, a clear roadmap, for example, is something challenging. And also, uh, there's a massive lack of experience among the youth. Uh, and we could see from the average age group of, of the civilian uh, government, they were not truly included in the, in, in the transition. They were sidelined. And they believe from conversations with youth groups that they were hijacked by uh, by the older generation. So a lot of them would say that there is a generational uh, crisis, not only a civilian military or, or democratic, non-democratic. Uh, uh, and, and another significant is that Sudan, uh, another significant uh, factor is that um, is that the Sudan was isolated from the international community for decades, uh, right? For uh, terrorism sponsoring uh, related uh, uh, reasons. Uh, so the fact that it's the reintegration of a country back into the international community, and it was a very uh, costly process for the people because also people suffer from the sanctions. Uh, I am not here to discuss whether sanctions affect or, or are effective or not, but but really people uh, suffer from the sanctions. So when there were prospects for the people and the economy to recover from these sanctions, now this is now being uh, threatened again because the international community would stop the debt relief, possibly, right? The debt relief or, or the financial support to uh, Sudan. And uh, also another factor is that uh, there are different regional uh, or external interests 
in uh, in in Sudan. Uh, not to say that Sudan is a is a playground for international fact or actors, but uh, you can you can see that uh, there's a lot of influence for external uh, actors on both sides. Um, and I, I will I will stop here. No, precisely. And when you say the external actors, the most notable clearly as well as to is the partners from the Gulf, particularly when, if, when one is in Sudan, that, that seems to be the most palpable, including every so often China. But I actually want to take the discussion in regards to the generational gap, because that seems to be also linked to what Dr. Shah had indicated in regards to where many on the ground are saying that the transition is over, it's dead, it's time for something else. Uh, Dr. Shah, Pointing this question back to you, uh, do you feel that that, that that actually is the case, that the transition is actually, unfortunately, um, hitting a dead end? Um, and if so, what is it looking like right now for the current situation in in Sudan for for a political transition to, to democracy and peace? Yes, well, I think that it, it has to be that the transition as we knew it is dead. Um, because if you have uh, one side rip up the constitutional document that governs the transition um, and, 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 and in, you know, in effect um, enact a coup against that, um, that arrangement, um, uh, it deeply undermines all trust uh, and means that the, the word of that document is no longer uh, worth very much. Uh, not only that, uh, the the civilian military accommodation, um, as, as Sharif pointed out, was was really between a set of political parties and political forces, and then um, under an umbrella group, the Forces for Freedom and Change, um, led with some technocratic uh, representatives in the government, like um, Prime Minister Abdel Hamdok. So all of these figures that were in effect in this transitional ar um, arrangement in the Sovereign Council, um, they've lost their political. Uh, uh, influence and sway and legitimacy and credibility because they were part of this transition and ultimately um, they were, you know, kicked in the face really by the military and security um, elements that enacted the coup. So uh, from the point of view of the civilians on the street, and we talk about these resistance committees, um, we talk about youth, but we talk about an, a cross-cutting array of of, of uh, people, um, civilian uh, movements, etc. From, the, from their point of view, um, there's deep distrust and there's deep um, dissatisfaction with the transition. And a, as was said, um, there was a sense that during those transition period, there were a lot of attempts to co-opt the resistance committees to make them part of a, you know, roadmap, a kind of template for the transition. And they and, and many of them resisted, and and it's only by resisting being incorporated into the transition that when the coup occurred, they still had the power and freedom to act. So in a sense, they've been vindicated. It's like we we chose to retain our freedom, our agency. Um, uh, we were not co-opted. Uh, we didn't become part of the circus, and 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 so we've never really been part of the buying into this transition and we will resist it now because we know that it's not worth the paper that it's written on. That's a deeply problematic and dangerous situation to be in, but it kind of makes sense too. And so I think what we are faced with is the fact that we need a new constitutional settlement really um, that needs to make sense of this. And so far, none of the attempts that have been made um, have been adequate to reassure the street that 
there is something that they can trust because all they have when you don't have arms and when you don't have guns and I've spoken to a number of these protesters and even in my um, my book when I was doing my research and I was looking at why young people were turning away from peace negotiations and roadmaps and democratic transitions there was increasing dissatisfaction with that is because they felt the only power they had was the power of coming together on the street um, and otherwise you end up sort of becoming part of these elite deals so I think there is a sense amongst um, these resistance committees, etc., that we won't also be told that we should have one voice, we should have a neat political program, we should have a neat roadmap and say, uh, because that's the game that's been played for many years in a lot of these deals. And usually it ends up in an elite deal that gets undermined by military and security actors. And 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 so they also don't really know what to ask for, but you can under, also understand why that is the case. And, and I think going to the point that Sharif said, um, they aren't unified, um, they are, but they also represent the plurality of politics that you might want to see, which is there are diverse views. There, are, there is no central hierarchical leadership of a lot of these organizations. They do debate, discuss things. Um, they have the qualities that we might like to see in a democratic civil society, but it does make it very difficult for them to have a unified representation to bring to negotiations, you know, with diplomats, um, with the you know the leaders of the 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 the, the coup um, as they are now. So it is a very very fraught and difficult situation, and and not easy to find the ways out. And what. And it keeps it much more concerning on that aspect. And again, it seems as if Sudan is really at this point where the direction doesn't seem quite intuitive and where it can go. But the most interesting thing that you have indicated was the fact that the only thing that seems to be what, uh, you know, those who are part of the, uh, of the, of the protest movement uh, seem to be highlighting is the fact that they have the protesters where they finally have beneficiary voice being heard to avoid, as you've indicated, uh, the potential of, of sim simply elite agreements coming in, which don't necessarily benefit the beneficiaries on the ground. So it, it, it does seem very much so that Sudan is at that strange point in time. But And that's where it takes it to my next question, and that's particularly around the United States. Now, as a, to, to point it out there, I'm not particularly one that's in favor of, of other international uh, actors coming in and, and trying to sh uh, shape the policy in the direction of a particular country. However, I do believe in international cooperation for the sake of a greater good, even as uh, idealistic as that really sounds. Uh, that being said, the United States seems that it can have a very good hand in helping Sudan navigate itself towards a democratic transition that can be not only peaceful but potentially sustainable and also hopefully one that is bespoke to the Sudanese um, dynamics. Uh, I do want to ask you real quick again, Dr. Sharf, before I bring it back to, to Sharif, if, if you can highlight in regards to whether or not uh, there's benefit with the United States engaging with Sudan. I know, of course, Sudan had been desperately for years trying to be removed out of the international blockade, uh, to move out of the, 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 um, the numerous lists that blacklists that has been put on and was very keen to have a fresh new relationship with the United States. Um, is that still the case? And is there a unique opportunity for the United States to really work with Sudan in a way that it can have a positive influence because of almost the Sudanese desire to collaborate on that sense. 
Yeah, I, I, the the United States is um, inevitably a player in Sudan and in the region. So even by not doing anything, it's it's playing a you know there's some kind of uh, consequence flows from inaction as much as from action. So it's much better to be thinking consciously about what the United States should be doing and taking care with that than to assume or pretend that it can be doing nothing. Um, and and so it's deeply implicated. Um, historically, uh, as well as obviously just because of its security and economic relations in the region um, uh, with South Sudan, etc. So it, it, it is very much a player. And I think that one of the dynamics that is especially important in the present is that the some of the key backers of the coup-led uh, you know, government of, of Sudan at the moment uh, include actors that the U.S. has some amount of influence over, Egypt, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia. And so to some extent, um, the United States plays an important role just because of its international relations. Uh, and if it's if it's concerned that greater legitimacy and support is being given to the military security-led coup and that that undermines its objectives um, for the region in terms of the kinds of politics it would like to see. Some of the things it needs to do are not necessarily in Sudan. They're um, in its bilateral relations with other countries to rein them in and make sure that they don't overstep uh, in a way that easily uh, undermines a democratic transition. Um, and then we get to the question of well, what could it actually be doing in Sudan? And I think there, there are some lessons to be learnt from the period from 2019 onwards. I think one of the mistakes that was made um, by the United States, but by others as well, was to, you get this popular revolution, you get this moment of change, um, and you get a transitional government that's agreed, and then to reduce it to a rather um, it, relatively technocratic uh, mapping of a transition process, um, allowing for these peace deals to be made with these rebel movements, which are very important. They did end these conflicts, but that just brought um, the political space of possibility of the transition back to the old formula of power sharing and divvying up spoils between armed actors. That further undermined the civilian element of the transition. Um, and then on top of that was a very technocratic focus, um, pushing heavy with World Bank IMF on sort of economic reforms, et cetera. But a lot of these really undermined um, everyday livelihoods and the challenges that were faced by ordinary um, civilians. And I think along the way, what was lost was the was uh, protecting and enhancing the power of the popular civilian movement that had led to al-Bashir's downfall and reducing this protest, this transition and this peace process to a very to technocratic me mechanical timetable sort of, um, you know, set of events. Um, I think this time around, this, the, the civilians on the street, the resistance committees are saying, no, like, talk to us, take us seriously. We might not be easy to talk to. We might not be a neat, organized political party, and we don't write the letters in the format that you'd like to see letters being written, etc. But we are the thing that you want in this country. We are civilian, political, you know, agency and um, nonviolent action. And, and that's something that I really try to emphasize in my book, uh, When Peace Kills Politics, which is the very irony of these attempts sometimes to build peace and make peace 
is that the thing that they're trying to build um, a world for, this nonviolent civil politics, is the thing that they undermine repeatedly with elite power sharing agreements with military elites and technocratic you know, plans on how the transition should occur. And what, they, what we need to do is foster and, and encourage and support the kind of civilian um, politics that we want to see in the country. I think for the United States, there's a real opportunity to say, well, you know, what what can we do that's different here that we didn't do 10 years ago during the Arab Spring um, that we that we give a lot more focus and attention to? Um, now, at the same time, I'm very also with you that, that sometimes doing something is not what needs to be done. And, and, and so we have to be very careful here because in an attempt to either, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, preserve and strengthen and support these sorts of movements, you can undermine them by putting money into it and distorting their politics or trying to formalize them in ways that they don't really sort of lend themselves to. So a lot of risks here. Um, But I think there is an opportunity to really support civil democratic politics in a much more authentic way than just focusing on election timetables, et cetera, and really get close to that politics and support it and and embrace it and encourage it while at the same time containing um, the risk that the military security actors who have led the coup um, run away with power in the country. And that includes, as I said, in part, by making sure that some of the allies that are supporting this militaristic authoritarian tilt of the country um, are not allowed to endorse it uh, as much as they have been. And this is allowing me then to go to ask this question to Sharif particularly, because we discussed in regards to what the U.S. could be doing, and and it seems that it's it's a bit of a mixed bag. But Sharif, I would like to ask, given you know your work on the ground and whatnot, it, what is the United States doing particularly on the ground to be able to support the transit the transition or support the, support the process? Uh, but ultimately, uh, from from what you're seeing the, the, and from what you understand, does the U.S. truly consider Sudan a foreign policy priority, given this very 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 unique? dynamic that, that that the country is dealing with. And I don't think it can be quite compared to any other country going on within the African continent or within the Middle East. When Trump became the president of the United States and uh, in the transitional time, during the election time between Trump and, and Biden, uh, everyone acknowledged that there was a threat democracy and peaceful transition worldwide and that it uh, even from the u.s perspective it uh, it hits home right um and uh, biden uh in in his uh, electoral uh, platform he said that democracy back in the u.s and worldwide and democracy promotion would be a foreign policy goal and uh we saw uh the democracy summit um despite the reservations on it, but the United States is trying to position itself now, or is supposed to be trying to position itself uh, now as a strong defender of democracy uh, worldwide. And this is a real test, what's happening in Sudan, as to whether the United States is um, going to uh, commit to its own uh, promises um, on that. So what is what is interesting is, uh, I mean, in because of the Sudan-U.S. relationships, the hostile and, and no relationship or no formal relationship over the last three decades before the the, the position of, of uh, Bashir, um, the United States uh, has lost a bit of uh, 
influence or grounds in, in Sudan that was filled by other uh, actors, other countries in the region, as, as was mentioned uh, earlier. And therefore, there is, um, there is a lot of influence for the other actors. And what I think is interesting is that there are prospects for a multilateral approach uh, here in the United uh, States rather than a unilateral. And I mean, multilateralism is, of course, uh, good, but what is your role within a multilateral approach is is the question. Like, we see that uh, the United States is involved in the Troika, right, the US, UK, and Norway as observers to the Juba Peace Agreement and uh, jointly issuing statements frequently, especially since, since October uh, last year. We also see the United States playing on a different front, which uh, the, what is known as the Quad Group, which is the US, UK, UAE, the Emirates, and Saudi Arabia, also issuing a joint uh, statements. So I think this is uh, this, this is actually a good improvement in in the US approach, but not sufficient, if you ask me. Um, and I think uh, it should uh, pay attention through the highest levels, uh, President Biden included, uh, because this is really a test not only for Sudan as a priority for to the U.S., but democracy as a priority to the world, uh, because um, you, there, there, it's, a, it's a dangerous crossroad right now in, in Sudan, and things could go either way. Uh, so as much as it's extremely risky, the transition is absolutely uh, threatened uh, right now. Uh, and, and and as was mentioned uh, also earlier, that uh, the transition as we know it is 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 not is not there uh, as it is. Although there are international and of course national efforts to try to put things uh, on track, but I think what needs to be done is uh, is not only um, like it needs to be on the highest levels and with. Uh, with with assertive uh, approach, of course, not not uh, downplaying national sovereignty because nobody wants uh, to do that. But uh, but at the same time, um, it needs to be reiterated. Uh, and and I think uh, the United States is in a is a is in a position as as the most influential single uh, country. I mean, globally, but though the the influence varies from one country uh, to another, but it has the opportunity uh, to to lobby and to put uh, to through this uh, incomplete multilateral approach. I would say uh, to 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 propose things that are now deadlocks. Like, for example. What, what is really there? Like, what, what, because there's no clear roadmap. The constitutional uh, document is uh, half of it is suspended. Several articles are, are suspended. The Juba Peace Agreement, as well, is is an issue because it complements. Right when it was signed in October 2020, it, it supplements uh, the, um, the 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 constitutional document. It's actually integrated as part of it. Uh, but the people are not seeing dividends of the Juba Peace Agreement, and it's mostly perceived as a power-sharing agreement rather than as a, a, a conflict resolution uh, document that it says that it just allocates basically, uh, right, it's power-sharing rather than what, what what people call here uh, social peace. Um, so this is, uh, this is a, a real issue because also members, uh, the key signatories of the Juba Peace Agreements are members of uh, the transitional, uh, the, the sovereign council, and uh, only those uh, members who were um, named by the 
Forces Freedom and Change, FFC, are the ones that were uh, basically uh, fired uh, by by General Burhan in the, in, in the aftermath of the 25th of October, uh, but the others remain there, and uh, this is not something uh, to ignore because what happens and and opening uh, the JPA, uh, the Juba Peace Agreement, or or the constitutional document uh, may be seen by some as necessary, but also may be seen by others as a Pandora's box, right? What what happens there? Does it really uh, threaten uh, peace? That can 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 it affect? Um, can, can it put risk for for massive violence rather than just violence by the security forces against protesters? Would it also uh, include uh, inter? Uh, militia or rebel groups, sorry, um, um, uh, fighting. Uh, so these are key issues that need to be uh, faci facilitated. And also, uh, just on my last thought on on this, because uh, regional regional actors are really influential in in a way, and not not only the the Gulf uh, countries and and Egypt, but also international organizations like IGAD and um, and. and IGAD played a, a key role in, in negotiating or facilitating uh, the Juba peace uh, agreement. So I see that they also, perhaps from the outside, you can see that maybe the United States is also uh, leaving space for uh, those uh, actors, but I think it should uh, contribute and supplement and fill in uh, these gaps. It's it's beyond allocating uh, money for, for supporting democratic uh, transition for civil society support. It's needed, but it, but but it's beyond uh, beyond that. And uh, and also, as as the honorable speaker mentioned earlier, that we need to look of transition beyond elections because this is a trend in 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 u.s democracy promotion looking at um at the transitional elections and end goal or as a, as the key milestone even if uh, not most of the financial supports goes to the elections but it's also seen as as uh, the end goal uh, regardless of things so we need to look at the broader aspect we need to look into the military uh, civilian relationship to the juba peace agreement to the uh, status of the rebel uh, groups that are signatories and also those that have not uh, signed the juba peace agreement and and this needs the highest level of international support uh, and i think the united states has a chance to uh, up its game on this front and that leads me then to the last question, and I am conscious of time, so I just want to ask real quick to then uh, both you, Dr. Sharif, and to you, Sharif, in regards to we've come to the agreement that the United States is clearly not doing as much as it should, um, yet it's an important player within Sudan. Therefore, the final question is, what is the risk if the United States continues to be stagnant or doesn't take Sudan as a priority to the future of, Su of Sudanese um peace and sustainable sustainable transition, uh, starting with you, Dr. Sharath. Thanks. Well, I think that what is going on in Sudan is is, is unique, right? It's, uh, it's out of time in a way, because around the region, Ethiopia, elsewhere, um, in the West Africa as well, we're seeing a sort of slide back into authoritarian rule. Um, the, the heyday of the Arab Spring is a decade ago, and it seems like it's really uh, not paid. Um, uh, the promises has not been um, delivered, really. Um, but what we have in Sudan is is something that we've all cared about for a long time, which is in, in the face of authoritarianism, um, uh, civilians 
not just for a day or a week or for a month, um, but really for a long period of time, coming together and claiming their sovereignty, claiming the right to self-government, um, claiming the aspiration um, of a civilian democracy. Um, so it's messy and it's difficult and it feels out of time compared to these other periods when this has been much more of a focus. But this seems a, a crucial opportunity to stay engaged and stay supportive of what has been long missing in the Sudanese context and for many decades seemed the hardest thing to um, to, you know, to imagine could be possible under 30 years of Bashir's rule and, and even before, um, but really is the thing that is being fought for from the ground up. And so um, this is really the chance. And I think Sudan reverberates into the Middle East. It reverberates into the Horn, into the Sahel, um, and into Central and Eastern Africa um, as, as significant. And what happens is Sudan has always influenced the many countries that neighbor it. Um, and so this, this is much more important than even just what's happening in Sudan, but it's obviously extremely important for what's um, happening in Sudan itself. And so with, with care, with delicacy, with, you know, with persistence and patience and thoughtfulness, um, the United States really should be engaged in what is, I think, one of the most important um, um, you know, situations of change and political possibility um, in the region um, that we've had for a long time. Thank you. And, and Sharif? I think uh, the international community at large, but since we're talking about the United States, it's also uh, not an, an, an exception. Uh, the role of the international community, and including the United States, right, is, is the burden is not on them because there is a national process, this is a national struggle, but when it comes to the, so, so it's not that all the burden is on the international uh, community, and it shouldn't be, but when it comes to the role, they should do the maximum um, they can. I, I, of course, the consequences of lack of international support would be um, that there, the, the dangers are, are, are there and are mentioned, like losing prospects for democracy and violence, particularly within Sudan and, and regionally, uh, as mentioned by Dr. Sharath, like it, it, it could affect bordering uh, countries uh, as well. But also we need to recognize there is a there is a Security Council mandated UN mission in Sudan. Uh, and it has uh, a, a big mandate, but uh, my assessment is that relatively it doesn't have uh, sufficient resources to, to undertake this mandate, perhaps due to politics within the Security Council, due to other uh, reasons, but uh, the fact is uh, the burden on, on, on the UN mission, I think, is more than the resources uh, there. So this leaves room for the other international actors, including the United States, to uh, support further, to fill in uh, this gap. We also saw that older missions are, are shutting down of uh, UNAMID and others, right, the peacekeeping. And so I, I would say that there is an opportunity and if it is not seized by the international uh, community, it will be uh, one voice that is prevailing, which is the voice of violence and perhaps, uh, and, and, and militarism. And, um, and, and it, is, it is very dangerous. It's not just about an, an election. Uh, it, is, it is really about uh, sustainable peace and democracy in Sudan and in the region. Uh, con con democracy as well as authoritarianism are, are contagious uh, when, when in, in the way that there's a dominant effect. Uh, Yusufo as Park in Tunisia moved 
the, the region uh, one way or another, and and therefore a democratic backslide or a crushing of a, of a of of a transition really crushes the hopes of others uh, elsewhere who are trying to to have the same uh, struggle. Thank you for that, Sharif, and actually thank you to you both. It's now still putting into the question in regards to what is next for Sudan, but this episode has been quite rich to really help both the audience and including myself really understand what could be coming up. But thank you, Dr. Sharath, and thank you as well, Sharif Allah, for your participation. And again, a reminder to the audience as well, too, that Dr. Sharath's book, When Peace Kills Politics, is actually available um, and easy to download equally as well, too, on Apple Library. I actually bought it for my iPad, and it's a very good read. So once again, thank you, Dr. Sharath, and thank you, Sharif Allah, for, your, for coming on the Global Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Global Podcast. I'm Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Tech and Global Consultancy, which produces this series. Please do check out our website at www.paxtechandglobal.org. That's P-A-X-T-E-C-U-M-G-L-O-B-A-L.org to discover more about our work. You can also follow this podcast and the work of Pax on both Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you like this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and of course subscribe on both Spotify and Apple Podcast. Join us next week for another edition, and until next time, grazie e ci sentiamo presto. Ciao!